0: Happy Saturday. It's January 22nd, 2022. That's a lot of twos. And you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker.
1: And I'm Michael Haney.
0: And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmel. Welcome to the show.
1: Welcome to another Saturday. It's... Still January, still gray, still cold. We're persevering. We're moving on.
0: It's warm and toasty in here, Michael. Come on over.
1: And one day we're going to actually start doing video of the recording. And you would see in the video, it's really warm and toasty for Ashley because in order to get the sound right, she self-sacrificingly puts a blanket over her head and her microphone because like some of us we have echoey houses and that is her devotion to you and the show and the listeners so there it is
0: it's comfy cozy in here come on (laughs) in i like it i'm totally tuned out to the world it's like being in the womb
1: exactly it's like we've all felt the last two years just pull the blanket over your head and start talking to yourself and help someone tunes in
0: i want to begin with andre leontali who died this week A lot of cliches have been thrown around about him in the past few days. He was larger than life, he was a fashion icon, and he was all of those things. But to us at Airmail, he was so much more. He was a friend, he was a contributor, he was a writer for us. He was a close friend of Graydon's for many years. And we have a lot to say about him. So I think we should start certainly with Andre. First and foremost, Graydon writes a beautiful tribute to him in The View From Here this week. He talks all about how they first met and how Andre came to Vanity Fair in the 90s after he had had a spat with Anna Wintour. And Graydon was just getting the hang of Vanity Fair and thought Andre could bring him some credibility in the fashion world. Quote, unquote, Graydon, I'm sure you had plenty of that already, but that's another story. And Andre came and did some really fabulous stories for the magazine. They came with staggering bills, but also staggeringly good ideas, and it's really fun to hear from Graydon about how not only those stories came together, but also how his relationship with Andre came to fruition.
1: Well, you know what's fun to hear, and I thought it would be fun for all of you at home to hear, is Andre... Truly, was guest number one on episode number one of Morning Meeting about mm, back in September of 2020, and um, I went back and into the archives, and I just wanted to play this clip because I think it. We know the vision of Andre, six foot six, and is wearing these caftans of color, and this enormous, truly enormous presence in the world. But to hear his voice, which is so full of love and enthusiasm for fashion, and this is about him coming to New York. If you don't know his story, he was the grandson of a sharecropper, raised by his grandmother grew up in North Carolina in the 60s, somehow made his way to Brown University, and he earned a master's in French literature. And this is talks about how he sort of makes his way to New York City and, like anyone who comes to the city, sort of breaks in and makes his way into his career. So let's listen.
0: So tell us a little bit about do you remember your first season at the shows? When was it? What was it like? How was that September different from the
2: Well, my first season at the fashion shows in New York were actually was when I came to New York in nineteen seventy-four, in October, I think I went to a couple of fashion events. And then I started working for Andy Warhol in January of that year, nineteen seventy-five. And so I would have gone to the collections in New York in February. So my, I don't remember vaguely a specific show, but I remember going to, with Andy. I was working at Andy as a receptionist. I was a receptionist and took messages from people like Fran Witz who's a great friend, and she still is. It's Catherine is. Andy took people out together. When you worked for Andy, you didn't make a lot of money, but you got the perks of going with Andy to events like fashion shows. But I remember that my first fashion show probably was a Bill Blass fashion show. And those shows in those days were not as exciting as they were before the pandemic. I mean, it was strict bread and butter business. You went to a ballroom at the Hotel Pierre. There was a high-raised runway. A catwalk was elevated above the audience. You were seated on little gold ballroom chairs. And the show just began with a little bit of tape music, perhaps not so concentrated on special music or thematic music. And the models just came forth, back and forth, back and forth. But I remember my first extraordinary fashion show ever was in Paris, France. And I will never forget that. And that was the Carl Lagerfeld collection for Chloe. Wow. And that had to have been after 1975 because I met Carl in May of 75. So I somehow got myself to Paris and went to his Chloe fashion show. And that was just exquisite, extraordinary. And that, those were the days when Karl Lagerfeld, who was already a great emerging world-class designer, would have fashion shows and he would cast the models from, through his friends. In other words, Pat Cleveland would be his friend. He'd have a, a girl named Oya who's now cleaning buildings in Berlin. She's a custodial janitor, but she was one of Karl's greatest muses. And Donald Jordan and people like that. And Karl would cast the models. He would have the models meet at the show with the venue and they wouldn't have a rehearsal or lineup. Karl would just be in the back with racks of clothes and would say to the models, pick whatever you want to Wear. You go through the racks and pick what you like to wear. And that's how the show was. And then the show would come out and there would be these extraordinary looks. And the one thing that I remember about one of Carl's first shows is he would give the girls the clothes after they walked. They didn't make a lot of money. He says, here, take this home. Take this with you. Take this home. Take this home. So what they wore, they got as
0: payment. There was nobody like him. Not only did he have an incredible visual sensibility, but he really knew how to turn a phrase. If you haven't read his memoir, The Chiffon Trenches, there's no better venue for him to do that. It's really essential reading. And not only because of its way of telling Andre's life story, but also as a an artifact of what the fashion and style worlds were like at the time that he was living in them.
1: Yeah, he had such enthusiasm and he was... One of the great ambassadors of fashion, people always wonder, what is the point of fashion? And for Andre, it was always about beauty and educating the eye towards beauty.
0: Well, let's talk with someone who knew him very well. We've got Jonathan Becker here. Jonathan is not only an esteemed photographer, but also was a dear friend of Andre's for 45 years and one of the last people who spoke with him. So welcome, Jonathan, and thank you so much for joining us. So first of all, take us all the way back 45 years ago. How did you first meet Andre? Andre?
3: Well we met we met at Diana Reland's house. We were both working for W magazine. It was about nineteen seventy-eight. I'd been a taxi driver. Had three months earlier I'd picked up Diana Reland in front of the Beekman Theater. She was seeing a movie with she was it was Count Crespi. She was seeing a movie called Linocente, a Visconti movie. I actually knew the actors very strange. So who's the cat? And I knew her family and so forth. Anyways, it was very stunning for her to have the taxi driver know both her sons and her grandchildren and whatnot. I dropped her off in Count Crespi. And then by a magical coincidence, I got an assignment three months later. I showed up at her door and the taxi driver to photograph her for W. And had already been working for extensively in Paris and whatnot. And there was Andre with her at the door, because he really looked after her. And the whole thing was just magical. We did wonderful portraits of her. He was a sitting stylist for it, and she loved them and wrote all kinds of letters. And that was so. We had a very solid. I mean, the hook was solidly in the fish, both of us, at the beginning, and we worked together for years after that. I'd seen him also earlier than that, a few years around the offices at. Interview when he was in his safari shorts and jacket and whatnot. He was answering the phone and, and so forth, but I never met him. This was our meeting and it was wonderful. We've been in touch uh, ever since and worked together at Vogue, at, at Vanity Fair, his portraits all over the place. And it's more than stay in touch. We speak all the time and I see him. I, I visited him and it's been a hardened year.
1: When you look at Andre, and how would you describe his talent and what distinguished him?
3: His sensibilities in fashion were totally original and unique and he breathed it and everybody knew that. My relationship with him was, I mean, he was also quite intellectual. I mean, he was reading Baudelaire and this, that, and the other thing all the time. He was very well educated and curious and he had so many dimensions to his mind and he brought those all into his work which was he was a fashion emperor of a sense i mean diana Vreeland was called the empress he really did she told bob colicello she called he started an interview we both did actually i had my first assignment in interview in 73 he was already working there but he got the job because diana Vreeland called bob colicello and said this man is a genius he knows more than i do about fashion you have to hire him i mean andre was a kid and that's where he really started but it was all about diana Vreeland for him for a very long time then the costume institute it's all fashion history i think his legacy now is going to eclipse many others he was really very important and 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 and, and the best people saw that in him in his thinking purely original creature and that's what i most loved about him the connection is very important i miss him terribly
0: you were one of the few people that was speaking to him towards the end of his life jonathan how did you find him
3: fine i mean it was irrepressible he lived on willpower he had the strongest willpower anyone i've ever met i mean he was living on. he should by all measures he should have been gone a long time ago i mean he was terrible habits pretty evident and he enjoyed life fully he was had this fabulous sense of humor the day he died. When was it? Two days ago. We were having a video phone call, and he was in the hospital. He wasn't well, but he was laughing and carrying. He said, "Was bored." I was on my way to the city. Would I bring him magazines? I said, "What have I got here? This was the New Yorker, or whatever Vogue." He said, "No, no, no." He said, "I'm just bored, but I don't want those magazines." He was looking for entertainment, and then and then we laughed a bit about various things we usually do. Then the next thing I knew, I had a phone call, and he was gone pretty stunning.
0: He was so gifted in so many different ways. He not only had an incredible visual sensibility, but he was also so gifted as a writer. The way that he turned a phrase, his knowledge of fashion history, it was unbelievable. I remember just he'd file stories body of an email, not on Microsoft Word. It was all stream of consciousness, like straight from the head and from the heart. And it was always so spot on and so singular. He just had one of those voices that no one else really had.
3: That's exactly right. He had been a Great student and academic of the fashion world. He knew that going in, he really studied. It was his life, blood, he breathed it. So, what Diana Reeland saw in him and his way with words was hysterically funny, gifted. It was hugely literate. He could also write without an editor if he needed it. He could express himself beautifully with language. It's true. He was a brilliant man. I mean, far beyond what most people are aware of, he had very broad. Gifts and talents. I mean, far beyond. It's a shame he wasn't more prolific in his writing and his. I always thought that the great, greatest documentary of all time would be Andre. And they were done, but not fully. They were done a little late. That scene of him in the Vogue movie playing tennis in the Vuitton or I mean, just I mean his sense of humor was surreal and magical and beyond humor. It's what connects everybody humor in some way, don't you think? He really had to transcend the whole thing and he got to where he was going. And he was so thrilled and happy to have the privileges that he earned for himself. He joyful. He loved what he did and he was a really joyful human being, I have to say. He was an inspiration.
0: Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing so many of your memories with us. Okay, thanks.
1: Well, as you just heard from Jonathan, one of André's other longtime friends was the designer, Diane von Furstenberg, who we are very fortunate to have on the show today. And Diane, I was just wondering if you can tell us your memory of when you first met André.
4: Okay, so I met Andre, oh my God, in the early 70s. but my first visual image of him, I was having a party in my apartment. And for some reason, I went down in the lobby and he was there long and tall and he had a little orange cape. I always made fun of that, a little orange silk cape. And he was taking photographs of the people who were coming in. So that's my first image of him. Then we became incredibly, incredibly close friends. And the next big image and the big thing that happened to his life, I mean, of course, he worked for Mrs. Greenland, but that was even prior to interview. And then a woman's where John Fairchild, who was always provocative and but very talented, sent him to be the European correspondent and to live in Paris. And that was the time, it was in the 80s, I think. And it was all the designers, Saint Laurent, Givenchy, and Carly was friends with everybody. And André was the talk of the town. And I always remember at the time, Maxime, the, the restaurant, on Friday night, if you went there, you had to dress in black tie. And I always remember that on a Friday night, he went to dinner at Maxime's and he had, of course, the white shirt and the bow tie, but instead of wearing a dinner jacket, he wore a black cashmere robe. And everybody talked about it, it was a big talk, but he looked so elegant and so wonderful. And of course, he spoke perfect French. He had a master in French literature, so he loved being in Paris. And Paris loved him. He was the next thing after Josephine Baker.
0: In the past few days, we've seen the entire fashion world and also so many people outside of the fashion world pay tribute to Andre. What do you make of all this? Are you surprised by the outpouring of love
4: Well, I am so thrilled. And I can tell you that he is, I mean, he will become bigger and bigger. And I hope he can see it. And I hope he can enjoy it. Because, But I had the revelation when that weekend, when we were there for Obama's inauguration, I remember walking the streets with him in Washington, D.C., and the crowds that would come out to shake his hand. He was incredibly popular.
0: Diane, so many people have remembered Andre as a generous person. He was always one to lend a hand and to, to help booster the career of young people. Can you recall a time he was particularly generous with you?
4: Oh... Mm. One of the best things about Andre were his hands. I love putting my hands in his hands. He had these big, beautiful, reassuring hands. And so when you talk about generosity, for some reason, I think about his hands.
0: Wonderful. That was great. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful image.
4: Okay. Thank you very much, guys. Bye.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Well, before we go, let's hear one last thing from Andre. He had a formidable sense of humor, and I think for us, that's how we'll remember him, in addition to all the incredible things he accomplished in fashion. Like, let's take one last look at Andre Leontali, the person.
1: I was asking him, Andre, what do you do when you get to a fashion show and there's someone sitting, inevitably, as often happens, in your seat, and you have to dislodge them? So, here we go. And I know this has never happened to you, but maybe it has. You know the experience when you go to the fashion show and someone's sitting in your seat? (laughs) Yeah. So do you have a standard phrase that you drop on them? How do you evict the seat crasher from your seat? It's a
2: brilliant question. You're wonderful. I see that smile on your face. It's naughty, naughty. This is what I do. I'm a towering inferno. I stand in front of them and I give them a look. And it's a silent look. And I raise my shoulders and arch myself. Whatever I'm wearing, I arch my accessories or my man bag or something. (laughs) And I stand there and look at them. And just the look makes them get up. Or they question, <laughs> then I, and then I go, and if they don't get up, then I go for some usher or some person who's working for the company. I don't say to the person, you're in my seat. I run and get someone who's done the seat planning from the company and make them get the person out of the seat. As you would do on an airlines. You don't want to have an escalated thing, a scene. You don't want to be out there screaming, yelling, get out of my seat. You go get someone and you say, oh, this person's in my seat. Love it.
0: All right. Well, on that uplifting and hilarious note, let's take a little jaunt over to London, not on British Airways, but just metaphysically, where we have one heck of a tale from Joseph Bulmore, as always, our dear friend and off collaborator to Airmail. Joseph takes us inside 5 Hartford Street. or is it place?
1: I like how you ask me because I know you've been there. <laughs> I have not been there, actually. You're like, oh, oh is its is it five head-fed places? I, I get so befuddled. All I know is it's dark and it's beautiful, and I leave there at four in the morning as the sun's rising. So... <laughs> (laughs) Wherever the car drives me off, that's where I go.
0: (laughs) No comment. And I always walk there because it's in Mayfair, and I usually stay in Mayfair. No, it's a marvelous place. It's a Robin Burley production, Robin being the impresario of London's social life. And it's a private members club in Mayfair, and not only is it a place to go at night, but it's also a fabulous place to have lunch, especially if that lunch is washed down with one or two just two maximum glasses of crisp Chablis.
1: Tut, tut, tut. Just two glasses of Chablis. I'm just gonna... (laughs) I
0: can't help myself. I get very hedonistic when I go to London. All of the drama and intrigue that's swirling around there right now. And of course, that intersects with what's happening on Downing Street because Carrie Simmons, the newly minted wife of Boris Johnson, is she his third wife?
1: Oh boy. For those of you keeping score at home, if you could tweet at us, I think it is his third wife. I should know these important details. I know third wife. And then the question is, does he have six or seven children? think that is the big hang up. So yes, third wife.
0: So complicated when you're a swordsman. Yes. Anyway, Carrie Simmons, Boris Johnson's third wife. And it turns out that she has decorated the interiors of Downing Street to reflect its design sensibility. So there you have it.
1: Yeah. Bojo, obviously having a little bit of trouble this week. There's a lot of flack going around the UK, a lot of pressure on him to step down. After this controversial behavior during lockdown, when he attended some outdoor parties and even some members, if you, I don't know if you watched Question Hour this week in Parliament, but boy, did he get it. A couple members threatening or actually defecting, but he might not have a seat in government soon, but he will always have a seat, maybe perhaps at five head fit. five head fit.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like, life's not so bad if that's the case. You can go down in disgrace and shame, but as long as you can get into your private clubs, is life really so bad?
1: As long as you can have, um, just one more muslim- sparkling chablis, chablis.
0: Oh, you mock me, Michael. Wait till I take you there, baby. You're never going to want to leave.
1: Well, you know what I'd like to talk to you about? I mean, speaking of questionable behavior, is we've got a terrific story this week about the year of... The Grifter, and you know where I'd like to go, is one of my favorite sources of... It never ceases to give me entertainment and pleasure, which is... Basically, the idea that money definitely does not buy brains. And we've got a couple exhibits this week. Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. We could begin with an accused scoundrel behind a series of audacious jewel thefts. And we've got the idea that from a very informed person that 2022 will probably be the biggest year ever for art world forgers and frauds. So I just love it. People with too much money are going to get ripped off. If you're not careful, you're going to be deceived, which is a story by Barry Average, who, if you never saw the documentary, made you look about art world forgery. Put that on your list. We give you that a recommend. But he's got a riveting report this week and prediction, as I said, about why this year is poised to be the biggest year yet for forgery and fraud in the art world. Right, Ashley?
0: Who knew? It's like... Yes, the auction houses are on fire. The art market is hotter than it's ever been, and therefore people are taking advantage. Shock do
1: shock. Yeah, it's as he says, you've got almost a perfect storm happening right now. More than ever, we live in this world where greed and the quest for status reign supreme, and you've got then the unregulated, art world in which collectors can use art as a form of currency and tax evasion. It's his belief that forgers are poised to exploit this massive amount of wealth that is fueling the race to acquire art at any cost. And just to remind you, in the past year... The 10 richest billionaires added $402 billion to their net worth. So you think about all that money sloshing around, and they all want to buy something. They all want to be seen as smart, and they've got the big art on their wall. So that's only going to lead to people being duped. So it seems like if you want to pull up a chair and watch some rich people get way out ahead of themselves and probably be taken advantage of, it'll make for some good sport this year.
0: I'd watch that more than football.
1: Well, as I say, watch his first documentary, Major Look. I'm sure he's got something cooking in this one because, as he says in the story, he's got a great quote from a woman named Maria Konnikova, an expert on the art of the con and the author of a poker memoir, Vegas Bluff, who says, fraud really thrives in moments of great societal change and transition. And she says we're in the midst of a technological revolution and people lose their frame of reference for what can and can't be real. So again, if you're looking to buy some art, take a look at it. Keep your hand on your wallet.
0: Okay, well, Michael, it's always the year of the grifter here at Air Mail HQ. And honestly, if 2022 is the year of the grifter instead of the year of Omicron or Delta or Alpha or whatever the heck it could be like, I'm fine with that.
1: You're fine with that.
0: Also, we should mention quickly on a griftery note. I mean, we have Julie Garner playing Anna Delvey. That Netflix series is coming out very soon. And then we also have The Dropout, which is the Hulu series about the fate of Elizabeth Holmes, and that's also coming out. So, I mean, we've got grifters in real life, we've got grifters in the papers, and we've got grifters on the screen. What's not to love?
1: And and we've got the Apple Plus show with Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway playing the founders of WeWork coming this spring.
0: If that's not a gift to humanity, I don't know what is.
1: But we would be remiss if we did not mention one more, maybe not a grifter, but certainly a confidence man. A fantastic story this week courtesy of Steve Crawford, former correspondent of 60 Minutes and his co-writing partner Howard Rosenberg. A story we call the talented Dr. Gray. And it is, boy, if you want to read something that's almost out of a Patricia Highsmith novel, please take a look at this story. It involves a man named Lawrence Gray, 77-year-old retired academic with good posture and a previously clean record, who is the, I want to be very clear, not convicted, but the prime suspect in this string of extraordinary, shall we say, burglaries that stretch from Newport, the blue-blood homes of Newport, to the stately mansions of Georgetown, where waspy people seem to have been relieved of valuable heirlooms and pieces of jewelry, all because this man sort of seems to have, well, he did gain entrance to the home through his relationship with a woman named Jackie Quillen. What I love most about this story, among many things, is Why this story sort of was under the radar for so long is, you know what rich people, waspy people hate more than anything? Publicity? Exactly. Being embarrassed for looking like idiots. So they suffered these, someone would take a $45,000 bracelet would go missing. And what do you do? You don't call the cops because, no, 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 uh, oh, oh, no, 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 no. That, That would cause quite a stir in the press. Like, they just eat the loss and then sweep it under the rug. But this guy, obviously, if it were Dr. Gray, seemed to know how to exploit that vulnerability among them. But riveting, riveting piece of reporting.
0: Mystery, sex, scandal beavery it has it all and we've got steve here to tell us about how this all went so terribly wrong in addition to being a wonderful writer steve is also known as the longtime host of 60 minutes so welcome steve steve how did you come across this crazy story
5: well i've known the quillen family for quite a while and I sort of knew that i heard a little bit about this story, and they told me that they had filed a suit. And I asked them if I could get a copy of the lawsuit, and I did, and thought that it was fascinating, and would they cooperate if I were to do a story on it? And they agreed. So it, much of the story is laid out in a very obscure lawsuit that they filed against, that the Quillens filed against Larry Gray to try and get him out of their mother's house where he was squatting following her death, because the house had been transferred to the estate. The ownership had been transferred to the estate. And it started out, really, with them trying to get him out of the house and then morphed into kind of a story of them discovering that certain things were had gone missing and then led them on a trail that took them to a point where they've actually been instrumental in getting Larry Gray arrested in Newport for the theft of some a very valuable piece of jewelry.
0: This is the $45,000 Verdora brooch in question? Yes. Okay. So Larry Gray was Jackie Quillen's consort for 15 years, the last 15 years of her life. Did you ever encounter him, Steve?
5: I did. I met him once. I may have encountered him more than once, but I remember meeting him very briefly at a cocktail party somewhere where Jackie Quillen was. And I found him just sort of, he didn't stand out. He was very uh, forgettable. And that's part of, I think, his success. And I want to point out that he's not been convicted of anything. And at this point, although he is a person of interest in a number of cases in a number of jurisdictions right now, and the only thing he's actually been charged with is the theft of this brooch in Newport. But as I mentioned earlier, he has, it seems to have a knack of turning up places when valuable things disappear.
0: Tell us a little bit about the surprises that you encountered over the course of reporting this piece.
5: We first started working on this story, Howard and I started working on this story back in March when it was just starting to evolve, and we've been following it as it has evolved. And there's always been lots of twists and turns. You ask, I want to go back to the question about what was his modus operandi. Somebody described him as a cat burglar without a ladder. The allegations are that, and there's a pattern here, that he gained admittance to all of these wealthy and exclusive families by virtue of the fact that he was the plus one of Jacqueline Quillen. And he was able, while he was there, over the course of many years, able to sort of disappear during dinners and mostly for long bathroom breaks and then apparently, if he's found guilty, had a knack for finding, knowing exactly where it would be the most likely place to find expensive, valuable things and then descend upon them and move very quickly. And that seems to be his modus operandi. The most fascinating part of this story to me is that he has a whole credible career. He's got a PhD from Johns Hopkins in political science. He was a tenured professor at John Cabot University, an American university in Rome. He, for four years, was the executive director of the Fulbright Scholarship Program in Rome. He is would seem to be an accomplished person, not the resume you would expect to find with a jewel thief.
0: Okay, Steve, we have to talk about the spy factor, because to me, that was one of the most interesting details in your entire story. Tell us a little bit about his purported background or his rumored background with the CIA.
5: There's a lot of evidence that he was working for the CIA while he was in Rome. These things are impossible to get confirmed, but we have talked to lots of people who say that he was with the CIA and that his main function in Rome was to report on the activities of the Communist Party, of which he was Very familiar. As any good mystery, there are more unanswered questions than there are answers. And that's one of the things that makes this, I think, really a fascinating story.
0: Well, it's just a fascinating story, Steve, and an incredible job of reporting by the both of you. Thank you so much for sharing it with us and for coming on today to talk to us about it.
5: Right. I just want to say that I would not have been able to do this story without Howard Rosenberg. It would have been impossible to do this without Howard.
0: Michael, that's what I say about you when it comes to everything in life.
1: (laughs) It's a riveting story. I keep seeing Donald Sutherland as Grey. I invite anyone else to suggest their person.
5: You're not the only one who could see. That's been suggested that Grey was somewhat like Donald Sutherland at his most oily. And other people have suggested that maybe we could get, if a movie were being made, you could get Glenn Close and Jeremy Irons to come back and reprise their movie about Newport.
0: Oh, God, that's so dark. (laughs)
5: <laughs> that is dark. What was the name of the reversal of fortune? Wasn't that it?
0: That was that it. Was I it? mean, d- dark movie <laughs> and dark side matter. That's what we deal in here at Aramel.
5: Yeah. Look, it's been interesting.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Take care. Okay.
5: All
0: right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, Michael, we've been talking about so many heady things, but let's just go back to our happy place, right? Talking about Jeff Bezos' buffed, bronzed bod.
1: Well, sure. And I think for listeners at home who have more important things on their minds and might not know, yes, he's the world's richest man, but also he's the world's second richest man going through maybe perhaps the world's biggest midlife crisis divorced. Now he's up with Lauren Sanchez. But boy, if you've seen the photographs in the tabloids in the last week, he has now got a body which seems to, for a 57, 58-year-old man, seems to defy science. It's led to a lot of speculation. Is he getting injections? Is he sort of doing CRISPR? What is he doing? How is he getting this look? And Linda Wells, our health and wellness columnist, new to us from the former editor-in-chief of Lure Magazine, gets into a little bit of reporting this week on what might be behind that sudden transformation from geek to write it out, right?
0: I was going to say, from geek to chic. I mean, it's been a transformation that's been a long time coming. It started with the tight black t-shirts and the too tight jeans and all the rest. Now it's just getting, everything's getting bigger and tighter in the Jeff Bezos universe. But most importantly, Linda answers the question on everyone's minds, how can I too achieve a Bezos bod?
1: Yeah, how can I look like Tony Stark is basically all these guys want to look like the superhero Iron Man sort of thing. So Linda has a few, it's not crisper level suggestions, but things that might be in the Jeff Bezos. Bezos. Bezos Medicine Chest.
0: Get out your American Express cards. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to want to buy these things. All right, Michael. Well, we've talked a lot. We've been grifted. We've been gifted. And now we're about to head off into the long weekend. But before we go, is there anything at all you can recommend?
1: I can recommend something and it's not art that you're going to be exploited by or worry is not authentic. It is something that you can do for very little money and see. It's in New York. It's at, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, one of my favorite galleries, the Neu Gallery up in New York City. And it is a show that opened right before the holidays. It's running through March and it is called Modern Worlds, Austrian and German Art, 1890 through 1940. And this show celebrates the 20th anniversary of the museum, and by doing so, it brings together many of the pieces owned by Leonard Lauder, who's the prime benefactor of it. It's a staggering museum-wide exhibition organized thematically, but in it, if you've never been to the Neue Gallery, this is your chance. It's a perfect time to see what all the fuss is about, and if you have been, you're going to see a lot of great masterpieces, everything from Max Beckman's work, Self-Portrait with Horn, to a lot of Igan Schiele, and even Bauhaus furniture, so take a stroll up there, if you're feeling safe to go indoors, they're spacing people out as I would remind you always, stop in Cafe Sabarski and have a little strudel or something, or hot chocolate, and that would be my recommendation this week, and you dear?
0: Mine actually goes along with that quite nicely, while you're at it pop by the Guggenheim because there's a great new Kandinsky exhibit that has just debuted. I think if you like Kandinsky, and who doesn't, it's really essential to see. But I have to say it's my favorite thing I've seen at the Guggenheim since Hilma F. Klimt's exhibition there, which I think was in 2019. So several years back. So really worth checking out.
1: Good. Well, look, we got a little weekend of culture for folks here in New York. Others of you, will be back to other things that are accessible through electronic mediums next
0: week. More junkie television recommendations coming your way. All right, Michael, on that note, thank you all for joining us. It's been such a treat to have you here. Michael, will you please read us out?
1: Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us.